Hey, this is Derek Duncan from the Feed the Ball podcast. You're listening to State of the Game, the golf podcast that started it all. Be sure to check out the Talking Golf Network at TalkingGolf.com, the home of golf's most engaging discussions. Episode 93 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and what matters on this episode is the year's second major, the course it's being hosted at, and most importantly, the man who designed it. Strange as it still seems to say it, the PGA Championship will be the second of the Grand Slam events in 2019, and marks the return of major championship play to one of public golf's best known and most revered layouts, the Bethpage Black Course. In New York, Beth Page is one of the best-known works of American Golden Age architect A.W. Tillinghast, and like all his contemporaries, he was an interesting character, to say the least. We're going to talk about the life and times of Tillinghast today, and in particular, his widely known tour of the U.S. during the Depression, advising courses on ways to remain viable in those dark days. PGA historian Bob Denny will join us in just a moment to talk all things Tillinghast, but first, let me introduce the rest of us from the US. It's writer, commentator, blogger, golf channel analyst, and most importantly for us today, course architecture expert Jeff Shackelford. T- Jeff, today's going to be fascinating. I'm still having trouble comprehending that it's almost time for the PGA. It's going to take a year or two to get used to this, isn't it? This yes. yes, am I. Uh, I'm excited that it's here. I No question, but it is definitely something to to wrap your head around. So, um, And I think the people of, of Long Island uh, have been kind of a warning us that it, it will definitely be a bit of a shock compared to past events at Bethpage in terms of weather. <laughs> it's amazing. Isn't it? We don't have such disparate weather here in Australia. So we're probably not used to the difference between playing in May versus June or yeah. some of those things. So uh, always interesting to watch it play out. Looking forward to chatting with you today from down here in the Antipodes. He's a writer, analyst, course designer, former player, and I can now confirm an impeccable golf course study to a co-host and travel companion, Mike Clayton. Clates, slight change of pace for us today, all the way from Barnboogle Dunes in Tasmania to the other side of the world in Bethpage Black, where, if I'm not mistaken, you say you were witness to the best shot you've ever seen hit in person? Well, the best straightforward shot, yeah, Tiger Woods at the 2002 Open on the 13th hole, that two-iron that would have gone over a skyscraper if it had been one in the middle of the fairway. When he hit it 268 yards into the middle of the green when Mickelson had just smashed driver three with about 20 yards short. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you don't see those shots very often that, are, that you still remember them. I can still see that thing in the air. It was incredible. And from behind, Clates, if I'm not mistaken. So From behind, John Huggin and I were standing about on the fairway about 30 yards behind him, maybe, because we had press passes. So you always feel guilty going inside the ropes. But yeah, not always. We were inside the ropes at the. <laughs> Last round of the US Open, that was that was a great round of golf, Tiger. He, he only shot 70. It's like Augusta when, well, he only shot 70, but he only shot 72 that day. That's page, but he hit the ball like a machine. I mean, he three-parted the first two holes and three-parted the last, and I think he made two other birdies aside from that. Not all 72s and, are created equal, are they, Clay? No, no. You <laughs> always had the impression that if he needed to shoot 68, he would have, but he didn't need to, so he didn't. And everyone said, well, you know, the, other, you know, the others didn't play very well or you know, he, he backed into it or whatever, but he just shot what he had to shoot. 
Indeed. With 15 majors under his belt, that's an outrageous allegation to make about the man that he backed into anything. Let's <laughs> not uh, bog down in that because, of course, we're about to see some more tournament golf at Bethpage Black, which we're all looking forward to. Let's introduce our special guest for today, Bob Denny from the PGA of America. As the organisation's historian, Bob is intimately familiar with the story of A.W. Tillinghast and his often too little recognised contributions to the game. The upcoming staging of the PGA at Bethpage Black is a perfect opportunity to delve more deeply into the life and work of Tillinghast, and Bob has kindly agreed to help us do that today. Bob, welcome to State of the Game, and thank you very much. We really do appreciate you taking some time at what must be a pretty busy time, just two weeks out from the big event. Yes, it is, and thank you very much for letting me come on today. Uh, I guess it's the evening where you are, uh, but... uh, I just wanted to say that it's very happy to have the opportunity to speak about Mr. Tillinghast, who, as you said, uh, at one time was lost in history, and uh, now he's very much in front of everybody. It's actually morning here, Bob. 7 a.m., which is late for us to be doing State of the Game. Often Shaq makes us get out okay. of bed here at 5 a.m. to record the show, because that suits him. Uh, yeah, it's, it's morning where you are, yes. Okay, morning, sorry. Yes. No, no, not at all. Don't be sorry. It's fantastic. You've touched on it, Bob. I guess most people know Tillinghast's name from his course design work, and I suppose particularly that U.S. Open uh, that we saw at Bethpage back the first one when he sort of exploded back into the limelight in some ways. My goodness, that's really just such a small sample of Tillinghast's contribution to the game, isn't it? When you start to scratch the surface, what a, uh, what yes. a con- contribution mm-hmm. he has made. Mm-hmm. Well, he's, he's a, he really is credited with approximately 70 original courses and equal amount for, re- for design, redesign. But late in his life, Tilly wrote, and I quote, I have been intimately in touch with construction of holes of my design on more than a thousand golf courses in every part of the land. And his courses go from coast to coast and into Canada. It's amazing, isn't it? What we miss mm-hmm. is by not having access to be able to talk to these blokes today. But we do have, and this is kind of what I wanted to get to with you, Bob. Not only did Tillinghast do a tour, and I'll get you to outline what that tour was about, how it came to be during the Depression, advising mm-hmm. courses on sort of cheaper maintenance practices, etc. But I didn't realise that whilst he was in the midst of that tour, he was writing a daily, it wasn't a diary, it was almost a, a daily letter, an update of what he was doing. And we have those records, which I think you're sort of custodian of. And I'm fascinated to hear some more about that. So first give us a thumbnail sketch of who sort of devised the tour and what the, what the concept of it was, and then we'll get into some of the details. Of well, it, if, you can, if you can imagine, uh, in 1935, in the heart of the Depression, uh, there was a WPA uh, that the U.S. government put the World Work Projects Association, and uh, pr- Franklin Roosevelt was trying to uh, help get people into work, try to find kind of some from work for others, and they're constructing golf courses in local towns and keeping the people in, in business at different points, and there's tons of nine-hole golf courses around the country. I was born in Iowa, and we had the greatest congregation of nine-hole golf courses per capita of any state. And so I was very in tune with these small-town golf courses. And as they went through on this tour of a tilling house, there was a need for maintenance. There was a need for better play uh, uh, ideas, how to make it more playable, because most people couldn't play some of the courses that were designed by WPA people who didn't know about how to construct a modern golf course. And I guess the best thing to say is that Tillinghast came and offered this services because he was, frankly, he was uh, he, get, uh, he was bankrupt at the time, but he needed help, and uh, most people did at that time. But Tillinghast uh, was a great friend in uh, PJ President George Jacobus. So if you can imagine the start of this tour and the way he to improve public golf and opportunities for everyone, 
It began in August 15, 1933, and uh, he uh, went on this amazing uh, cross-country in a jalopy uh, when there's no interstate highways back then, of course, and his letters and his reports were coming in uh, sometimes by dictation, sometimes by typewriter to another secretary, and she would write everything down the way he had and dictated. And I learned this aspect that he started in this book one, for instance, had uh, 192 entries. He visited, uh, let's see, one, two, three, I'm counting them up. Five, six, eight, nine, 19, 26 states and 41 courses he, he spent entries in California alone. Wow. So it was amazing. So August 15 to 33 in that book one to January 27, 1936. And uh, Tillinghast uh, went through that entire time. He really loved California. We, we, can, we can find that out. Book two, uh, 25 states, 45 times in California uh, visits. And he ended on May 1st, 1937. And he was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, prior to that, he went to the Mayo Clinic for blood tests, and they said he was okay. And, uh, and that was 1937. He died five years later. And um, a little spin for our interview, uh, uh, tomorrow will be his 143rd birthday. Oh, wow. Oh. So that'll be uh, the 7th, May 7th? May 7th, 1876. Wow. It's already happy birthday mm-hmm. from us. Because we're already in my right, city. right. <laughs> That's right. You are, you are. <laughs> but he, like he crisscrossed the country, and he, he did a wonderful job of trying to think. And the best part about those who may critique him that he destroyed a lot of the, the way he looked. Of course, is he took away. He believes eight thousand bunkers in his career because they were not playable, and 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 he got tremendous um, responses in the PJ Magazine uh, for his work from some of the highest. Um, officials and a number of golf courses saying, we thank the PGA for this service. We appreciate it. Mr. Tillinghast was patient and went through and met with all of our committees on his visits across the country. And I just sort of speak for the man he was. You know, I, it, it, that trite is overused sometimes saying the person is a renaissance man. Well, Mr. Tillinghast was a renaissance type man because he, he, would, he, he could invent, he could think outside the box. Um, yes, he did. I would mute Clates if I had the uh, option, Jeff, but unfortunately, Clates will have to mute himself. I know what you're doing there, Clates, mm-hmm. but stop it. <laughs> Making horrible noises that's annoying everybody. No, well, I'll, I actually, sorry, I went to the my bookcase to get out the, the course. Oh, that was the bookcase. Okay, good. That's okay. Not, so, that's acceptable. So, so I now have Tillinghouse's book. I'm flicking. Yeah, yeah. So, so, which uh, has been too uh, long since I've looked at it. Bob, wasn't there was there a, a hard stip, stipulation with this this tour uh, as part of the, the 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 work essentially for the PGA of America? Did he have to go to a facility that had a uh, a, a PGA professional, or or or, or was that um, and be invited by that professional? That, that that part has never been clear to me exactly what the role was there of the the local pro. It's a mixture of both. He okay. was invited by a PGA profession to a location, and he mentioned that in his notes. But then there was also those that wanted to see him in that in that region, and he went out and saw them, and then reported okay. back to the PGA about that service. Yeah. So I would say I would say seventy percent of those he visited had some PGA of affiliation. 
yeah. at, at, at that time. And if if you break it down, that's more like that. So, yeah. And um, it's really, I'm sure Jeff, you've seen this many times, but A. W. Tillinghast was a chameleon. There are not two golf courses alike in his yeah. resume. And I think that really speaks for the kind of man. But he thought outside the box, and he's always had something in his mind. For instance, there's one particular visit that I'd like to share with you guys. And yeah. he, he was in New Mexico at the time. I'll, I'll, I'm trying to find my entry here, if you bear with me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And he was, okay, and he was, he collected, um, while we're at it, 451 course visits I counted of the 392 entries in the two books. So he, he's a lot of lands. Here, let's, let's go to March 11, 1937. While at a hotel in Deming, New Mexico, Tillinghast visited by a city official, J.Y. Rogers, who is building a nine-hole course under the Works Project Administration. The hotel clerk who played golf at the local nine-hole course recognized Tillinghast's name and called the city official. So the city official visited with Tillinghast, and their discussion lasted until nearly midnight. <laughs> Tillinghast wrote, he was hungry for information, and I, of course, gave him all possible advice. He knew very little about a modern golf course, and, is, and it is rather pathetic to consider that money and government assistance is so misdirected. Certainly, the WPA should take steps to check carefully on all golf course work. And that, that was his little, his little um, footnote to that visit. Mm. So he, there was moments when he wasn't with a top official or a top architect or a top uh, agronomist or a top superintendent. He was, he was the kind of guy that would strike up a conversation yeah. with someone if they really wanted to be serious about bringing golf into a community. And I think that's one of the untold uh, little side notes about mm. this tour. Yeah. Which is a community service, isn't it, Bob? For both golf and mm -hmm. communities more, more broadly. And frankly, Jeff, I think it's something we could probably consider today. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a high-profile architect wander the country in this day and age, Jeff, mm -hmm. advising on how to improve yeah. public golf mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. advising on what new public golf uh, facilities we might develop? Jeff, how sort of widely known amongst the golf public do you think? A, Tilling has the name, I think, almost every golfer knows because – uh, of that sort of the, the U.S. Open that went to Bethpage Black. And, and who wrote the story in yeah. the USGA Journal? Frank Hannigan, yeah. And Which is quite famous. But this tour, how many people know about that, do you think? And the how many golf courses, I mean, it's, it's impossible to say, how many golf courses might he have saved around the U.S. during that tour? Well, Bob touched on it. You know, I think he mentioned the word, uh, it's been viewed, uh, it's been viewed negatively in some ways, the, this tour. And that's kind of why I thought it would be great to have him on to, to highlight this um, and, and highlight what Bob's done to preserve these the, the documentation. Because, And, and I, I need to go back and read. Maybe it was in Frank Hannigan's piece or somewhere else. But, uh, you know, there was that suggestion that he went and toured and he just took out bunkers. And, and, and just that passage is beautiful that Bob shared, that it was more than just going to courses and telling him how to save money and rant about, uh, you know, misuse of government money. He, he did all sorts of things and gave, you know, just some of the snippets that, that I've seen that Bob has shared. He also gave uh, very few comments to which we know if you and Clates could, could describe, you know, imagine going, having Tillian show up in some place and they're bickering about something. And here he comes and goes, well, you actually have a very fine golf course. You might do this to save some money and otherwise shut up and leave it alone. I mean, there was some of that to his work, too. So 
it's just a, it's the most uh, fascinating thing I think that any uh, architect ever undertook uh, in terms of, of the, the, the scale of it, the timing. And then obviously he was, can you imagine him rolling in with his wife and um, his huge personality and dealing with the travel at the time? And there are just so many layers to the whole thing. And, um, and, mm-hmm. and really, I didn't really even realize, Rod, how much, uh, you know, really what Bob had done to, to preserve these, these letters and, and to save all this. And, and I, and I, and I do hope before the end of the show, we, we kind of figure out how to, uh, to make sure that they're somehow preserved in a way that, that, cause, cause Bob, I would assume that, uh, if not, uh, already, uh, you will get requests from people wanting to know the report that Tillinghast gave on their golf course. Sure, um, how do you deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I'm happy to share, as you know, because I'm uh, I, I like to think that I'm sort of like the depot for some of the questions around the country in so many different levels. Uh, I have a complete list of every entry and every golf course he's made. I can certainly share that online easily with our listeners or for any of those aficionados out there. Okay. And I believe that uh, there's also gentlemen in uh, at Baltusrol. Uh, Stuart Wolf and his sure. Richard Wolf and uh, Dick Trebus, who uh, are three of the great guys to have any time in a discussion about history and Tillinghast. They preserved the Tillinghast, unquote, unquote, society uh, to, to, to keep alive his uh, legacy and so forth. And I, I think that it's one thing we can certainly help uh, your listeners and, and, and more appreciate this gentleman and what he's done. And I've I, I begun to get more and more. Uh, into the, the the man who he was, and they talk. Some people as critics they say, well, this is a gentleman who has suffered from alcoholism. Yeah, he suffered from alcoholism, but he wasn't drinking on this tour, folks. And if he was, it wasn't that much because he was putting these notes together with just very finite detail. And he his schedule was exhausting, and that's why he went to the Mayo Clinic, made sure he was okay, then back and forth. But he did travel across this country twice. And I, I go back to my totals, 29 states in book one, 25 oh. states in book two. So he had lots of visits, lots of contacts. But some of these people, for instance, Jeff, who were inviting him to the courses, were, it was amazing. We got in Chicago, we got uh, Ari Ball and Green Caper Tom Creighton. We got Tom Pennick, brother of Harvey in Austin. We got Dick Grout, brother of Jack Grout in, in Fort Worth. You know, we've got, he met with the Southern California PJ section officials on a Catalina Island cruise. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's got Henry Picard, Kyla Foon, Les Bolstead, and Olin Dutra, all mm. wanting to help get his input. And he's like a little round table uh, court, court he's holding at these places. So that, that to me is the, the, like the side stories that are rich yeah. in information. And it, I don't think you can ever get enough of A.W. Tillinghast. <laughs> no, no. How was it received? I'm going to come to Clates in a minute because I can only imagine what he might do with the opportunity to travel around the country advising on courses. <laughs> it's an intriguing idea, I would assume, for the architect. And he was clearly committed to it from what you've outlined. He wasn't mailing it in, as they like to say, just no, no, here no. and there. He was genuinely committed to it. What sort of response did – I imagine there must have been some jealousy from some quarters, though, about him, A, having I'm the opportunity, I- and B, meddling, quote-unquote, in some courses mm. that they might well, have worked on. Yeah, I, I really can't speak for the perception in the in his in his among his peer group, but I, I do know that he he really was 
we got more and more um, possible people to come on board and try to invite him as this tour went on. And the publicity around it in PGA Magazine helped bring more people attention to the fact. And how about this for a meeting on December 6, 1935? He met with Donald Ross in Piners, North Carolina, mm. toured the number two course. Tilly has congratulated Ross on his work, and he received, in turn, a vote of approval by Mr. Ross for the PGA service, because Mr. Ross was skeptical about it at first, and then he came around to see what was happening, and he gave his stamp of approval. Wow. How important might that have been in the, in the, at the time, I wonder? Um, like that. Mm -hmm. Clades, can you imagine mm. some of this? Firstly, were you aware of this tour of Tillinghast? You've got his book. I'm not sure whether he talks about it because I, of course, shamefully haven't read the book. Were you aware of the tour and what it was about? And what an intriguing idea as an architect. Would you sign up for that if somebody came to you and said, we'll pay you to go around the country advising golf courses on how to be better and it more easily maintained? Would you be up for that? Yeah. Well, I knew about the tour, but I was actually, it was funny. I was thinking about that the other day. I think that would be an amazing thing Golf Australia could do in Australia, yeah. who, are, who are the USGA Bob of our country. You go to so many country courses that no architect's ever been to. The members don't think about it. And there's so much simple stuff, even without construction, there's so much simple stuff you can do to make them better. And they have no advice. They kind of just bumble through from year to year and, you know, a bigger question is, you know, Mackenzie's question about why people get bored with golf and give it up because the courses they play are not interesting. And, I, you know, there's, there's barely a course you see that you couldn't make better just with simple change. And there, was, you know, there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of, well, certainly hundreds of courses in Australia all over, all over the place who have never had seen an architect, have never taken any advice, just play golf there and don't think about it and, so the concept of architects going around the country and just advising for a, a, a reasonable fee and unaffordable work, I think it's a great idea. And it's a wonder it hasn't happened more. Because it can be as simple as mowing lines, can't it? Change the mowing well, lines, change the golf well, course. Yeah, mowing lines. And, and, and you and I well know our, our friend Adrian Logues, you know, that hedge at the back of the third tier pimble. I mean, just, you know, if Tillinghouse went there, he would just say, I think it might be a good idea to take that out. You would have a nice view down the next hole. And, you know, it's not achieving much and it's costing you money to cut around it. And this would be a better hole without that hedge there. And it would take them whatever to get rid of the hedge and it would improve the golf course and save money. And, you know, just simple stuff that the, the, the ground staff can do that, you know, it's little details that often make golf courses more charming and have more character than they might otherwise have. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Jeff, you touched on this earlier, is that this this sort of view among some that really all Tillinghouse did was wander around the country filling in bunkers. My goodness, that undersells what he's done on this tour, doesn't it? Let's maybe explore that myth a little bit. Because, as you said, sometimes you yeah. turn up to a course and say, fantastic golf course, don't touch it. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he advised on turf conditions, and he, his involvement with turf goes back to the early teens. And um, one resource I found that he could be credited with the formation of the pre-USGA green section with his direct involvement in, in, with Pine Valley. So he's, 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 there's a little sprinkling of, of him everywhere in some, in some respect. And I'd like to mention also that one of the very – you look at the championships that have been played on his golf courses. Our count has 33 men's and women's championships that have been played on Tillinghast courses. The total count of national and international championships on all levels is 55. 
and that number keeps growing with Best Page hosting the PGA this month, Wingfoot hosting the U.S. Open in 2020, and Beth Page hosting the Ryder Cup in 2024. Yeah, uh, no questioning the quality of mm-hmm. the work. Bob, do you have some favorite passages? I imagine you've read all of the entries, have you? And I imagine some must stand out, even though all would be good, because, of course, Tillinghast, aside from this, was an accomplished writer, wasn't he? Uh, and a very well-known and respected writer and analyst in his time. Yeah, he, he wrote beautifully. Um, uh, uh, he doesn't write like that in his two books. Uh, he, he's more of a detailed nuts and bolts type of thing. It's, it's like a report to a, uh, of a visit of, uh, for instance, of your electrician who just came to your home. He's telling you exactly what he did. It's not flowing, but I would like to share with the reader, the admit with your listeners, if I could, uh, one of the fun stories that he wrote about uh, when he, after his Baltus Raw work. And uh, he, I think Jeff remembers this uh, that he had a there was an improper placement of a tree on on the old course at Baltus Raw, and it, it 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 really it was a nightmare to him because he had the twelfth hole on the old course was one in which he was ahead in the 1904 U.S. Amateur against Mr. Chandler Egan. And Mr. Egan went on to win the championship at Baltusrol. And uh, Tilly Haas played in the first round of that tournament against Mr. Egan and was one up by the time they got to the uh, 12th hole. And Mr. Egan was faced with a, a block shot from the fairway over this tree well somehow he hit the ball somehow it got through the tree don't ask us how and it found itself onto the green where he ended up with a birdie to win the hole even the match and turn the match and flip the match around well Tillinghast was so upset by that that he said that if I'm gonna read this to you now in memory that tree was coupled with one of my life's darkest moments some years later, I had been retained by Baltusrol to remodel the course and extend to its present 36 holes. One day, the late Lewis Keller, then of the Green Committee, heard the sound of axes eating into a half-dead tree and, buried and, and hurried over to investigate. Nearby, he found their golf architect looking on and smiling contentedly as he stood in the old 12th green. <laughs> so, so, somewhat like Craig Stadler is the... Chainsaws fired up all those years later. <laughs> <laughs> Similar sort of satisfaction, I suspect. The, 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 with the, the purpose of the letters that you've got there, Bob, were they a necessity? Was that part of the job? Did he have to provide a daily report of what he'd done or did Tilling has taken it upon himself? Do we know that? Well, because he had the fee that the PGA was paying him as a consultant, um, he had to report in. And I think he just went over and above and did a wonderful job of, of reporting. I mean, the, the minute detail of what he did one of his visits uh, is ridiculous. I mean, it's just amazing. It fills up these two volumes, and it's uh, it, it's more than just a travel story. It, it's just it just it's just like I said. It's he's telling the people he met with what they wanted to, uh, and what they're asking for and what he suggested, and they would go about the type of things and review each one of them. For instance, uh, there's a little episode where he's um, he's touring, um, let's see, River Oaks Country Club in Houston with Jack Burke Sr., father of Jackie Burke, okay? And yeah. he gives him some ideas on things, and they look at different things they find, and interesting little tops things they do. He met with members and delivered a speech on the PGA service at the Olympic Club in San Francisco. Okay. 
he, he toured uh, properties with some of the great players of the time, Willie Goggin, Willie Ogg, uh, Les Ballstad, um, a great teacher in Minnesota, Patty Berg's uh, coach. And uh, he's, he's got a number of different little side visits and mentions. For instance, in Oakland Hills in Bloomfield Township, Michigan, he got there at the request of the great Al Watrous, who's one of the greatest Michigan players of all time and won senior championships. And uh, he got there before the U.S. Open. At Wingfoot, he was there at the invitation of Mike Brady. And uh, at Weburn Country Club in Daring, Connecticut, 1936, at the request of the late Johnny Golden, he was there to uh, help make some suggestions on their course. And it, here's a footnote for you folks. Uh, Johnny Golden was the first non-American to compete on a U.S. Ryder Cup team. It wasn't discovered until after 1931 uh -oh. that he was born, born in Austria-Hungary. <laughs> wow. Have we adjusted oh, the results accordingly there, Bob? Can we <laughs> Has everything been sorted there and getting that? But he, uh, he, was on the, he was on the first two teams, and, and everybody says, oh, he's born in Tuxedo, New York. Uh, no? <laughs> wow. There you go. Controversy uh, here so, Bob, uh, so is your sense that um, this started as something and then and became something bigger. What, did, did this start in part, and, and, and this is my way to help have you clarify for us, because Tilly has had a role in the founding of the PGA of America, or he was present uh, at the founding. It, what, do you, is it your sense that, that, well, first if you could clarify that, and then that he... Sure. This sure. started as one thing, and then it built into something uh, bigger. Right. Right. He was invited to the organizing luncheon for the PGA of America at Wanamaker's store, January 17, 1916, in downtown New York City. And also invited to that same luncheon was Francis Wimet, several newspaper writers from the New York Sun, the Brooklyn, Herald, Brooklyn Eagle, and the New York Times. And... He never became a PGA member, Tilling Hast, mm. but he was a valued, valued voice in the golf industry, and he didn't want to become a PGA member. He wanted to be a, 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 his own lone wolf in, in many ways. Yeah. But here's, what, here's one thing that's interesting. When Wanamaker's proposal came up through a spokesperson, Wanamaker was not in the luncheon, very shy man who wanted to let some of his lieutenants uh, go about and tell about what he would like to do. Wanamaker wanted to make the PGA Championship its hallmark event uh, if, around the country. It's the, since they were trying to organize the first national all-professional uh, association. So, uh, Tillinghast speaks up and, and he listens to Wanamaker's idea to have match play similar to the News of the World Tournament in the UK. So he says, okay, what's wrong with that? He says, why can't we be different? Why do we have to follow someone else and when their reference was to the U.S. Open? So he said, let's, let's be different. So as you, as you know, the PGA was different and was a match play event from 1916 to 1957. So that was, he spoke up, and he's, he's in the minutes for, for mm. that, and wow. he's the most pronounced of all the people speaking up in the luncheon. Huh. So I thought that was very interesting. The Brooklyn Eagle picked up on this, and wow. he was not a charter member. But it's interesting, folks, that we had 35 charter members come out of that luncheon, 28 of which were born outside the United States. Mm. Well, that makes sense, right? At the time, Bob, most were Scots or Englishmen who mm -hmm. 
Come yep. over here, right? Yeah. It sounds confronting huh. when mm-hmm. you hear it, though, doesn't it, Jeff? That the PGA of America was founded essentially by a bunch of blokes from another country is uh, it's an interesting tidbit in history. What about that broader point that Jeff was asking about there, Bob, that the, the tour perhaps started as one thing but morphed into something bigger? What's your sense of that? Well, I agree with him totally on that because this, this started out as a very um, – I guess not the word mundane, but just a simple exercise of travel to meet all the requests that they initially had. But as you can see in the books that he put together of those entries, this became much bigger. One visit in one city leads to another visit. It exponentially goes on. And 40, 41 stops in California in book one and 45 in California book two. <laughs> and Amazing. he picked a good time to be out there in the wintertime. So. He eventually settled down. But, uh, yeah. yeah. He did. <laughs> yeah. His very first stop was in Albany Country, Country Club in 1933. His very last stop in his books was in Milwaukee's Blue Mound Golf and Country Club. Okay. In the modern era, Bob, if you wanted to organize something similar, you'd send out a bunch of emails to your database. That's how we do things. <laughs> how do you get the word out in 1935 that Tillinghast is available? It was, uh, it was a really quite an exercise in itself to see that happen. And I don't have the actual applications in front of me that uh, account for that, but the minutes of our executive um, committees back then, which today is the board of directors, and they are the ones that issued this first uh, opportunity. And uh, as Jeff mentioned, it became something bigger because the initial uh, plan was just to go to some of these courses within easy driving range from New York and and New Jersey. But then he found all these requests coming in, and they said, okay. And so they kept giving him this opportunity to do this, and uh, that that that'd be quite a travel uh, expense and reimbursement coming back, wouldn't it, for all, what that drop he had to go through? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, what would the stand the place mm-hmm. be like, Jeff? That would have been no easy task, would it, to drive from one place to the next in the 1930s? No. No, and so yeah, so the reason we're we're highlighting this in part is that we have a feature coming up during the PGA where you'll get to see Bob and see some of these letters and uh, but but really we we at Golf Channel were drawn to this uh, I guess I want to call it almost bittersweet uh, return of the PGA Championship to a Tillinghast course at a WPA uh, project where Tillinghast mm-hmm. clearly, as Bob's uh, quote made clear, he had, he had mixed feelings about the Works Progress Administration. And, and, and yeah, he was an artist. Mm-hmm. He was an art, artiste a little bit. So it's, it's the most fascinating thing, though, that, that so he's part of the founding of the PGA in, in a sense, and, and then he worked for them. And, and this project, um, I think, was just incredible what he did. And, it's, and I was one of those people who initially viewed it negatively as well uh probably because of one or two passing references and either hannigan or others just like that he just went and took out bunkers and i think bob's done a great job already just you're 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 understanding now that it was so much more than that it was a consulting visit it was a bit of a celebrity uh coming to town and in the golf world at a time things were so bleak and um and and then you know we also just wanted to highlight the fact that, that that late in his life he was also uh, forgotten about other than this tour and um and it's just uh you know you, you all you ever hear about is wingfoot baltus roll and and now beth page but uh there was so much to the man and, and so it was such a fascinating um a part of his life and what he did was it may have taken a little bit out of him right bob i mean it sounds like oh, he yes. 
Oh yeah, it, I, I would tell you, it, it, I get tired just hearing about some of these rides that he made. That's us thinking about them and experiencing them on those old roads. Mm-hmm. I'd just like you to read another a portion, if we could, to follow off that. He says, he says, after visiting many of my works, I candidly criticize a number of hazards at which I had placed myself, just as I have done on many other courses. But it must be remembered that general play has lengthened out considerably in 20 years, and that long ago we were much closer to another period of course conception. The pits I condemned today come under classification of Duffer's headaches, mm. and without hesitation I took my own medicine, which I had been prescribing. I say, however, that the pits which I closed today were comparatively few in number, and in no distance instance did they represent carries but rather side pits closer in and we place them now mm-hmm. that was a little quote i found in, in some of his work yeah so that was his way of saying i built too many bunkers yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was an admission it, it killed him to do it but he did it yes yeah, well, all mm-hmm. part of the process isn't it i suppose clates you is there here's an interesting mm-hmm. question this is a little bit off the topic but i suppose clates somebody posed this the other day is there an architect, a course architect in the world, who wouldn't just by their very nature want to change something about every course that they've built? Has that been your experience? That you always, you can't help but look critically at whatever's been put in the ground and think to yourself, well, we could have tweaked that there. That might have been a bit better. And if you had the opportunity, yep. you'd probably do it, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. Yep. And interesting, you know, at the same time, Mackenzie was at, on his tour in Australia in the late, late 20s. But in Australia, he went to Royal Sydney and they had... 300, an easy number to remember, 365 bunkers. And, and they filled in, you know, he just said, fill these things in. This is crazy. So Tillinghouse wasn't the only one filling in bunkers. I mean, I mean there were lots of, you know, there were lots of bunkers that have been filled in on the sand belt that were in, some in good places, but mostly in odd places. So it, it wasn't, he certainly wasn't on his own in recommending the removal of bunkers. Bob, can I just broaden the discussion out a bit, just to more generally, and, and, and it's something I don't think there's been a period where we probably haven't paid enough attention to it, just maintaining the history of the game. I think people, the, the natural tendency is to think the word history means dry and uninteresting uh, and, you know, almost mm-hmm. like accountants reports of things. And that's so far from the truth, isn't it? There is so much gold in the history of golf because, of course, the history of golf is people. Tillinghouse is one of the yes. men who shaped the game yeah. that we have today. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's important that people understand how we got here to make decisions about the future. And I imagine in your role, you must feel that and, and probably feel as I do. Not enough people are interested, including some people in important places who should be more interested, perhaps. Well, I thank you. Thank you for bringing that subject up because it's near and dear to my heart. Um, when someone asks me what golf history is, I once say I was looking for... Um, uh, Rosebud in Citizen Kane's basement, and uh, you you rarely will find Rosebud, because it, there's pockets of those that covet golf history and, and and memorabilia, but the golf history that we're speaking of is really I go back to the the phrase that uh, Mr. Trebus Bob Trebus and Baltasar uh, said he said history is today you're making history today and you're trying to chart it in the right way but don't forget the past don't figure out where we started i look back and and some of the great things i've seen over the years and it took me five years to really get to understand the the progress of the charter members of the pg of america because no one was keeping good records of it 
So I went back and worked on uh, birth records uh, at the turn of the century in New York City, coming through Ellis Island and things like that. And I, I basically learned about, you know, the, here's the immigrants coming over from Scotland and Wales and England to try to make a life for themselves in this country. And golf to me, guys, is really the most extended family in sports. It, 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 it sprinkles everywhere across the globe. Whether you, you like the game or not, you might have someone who's in touch, touch with the game, certainly, somewhere along the line. And that's, that's the, the beauty of the game that we have. History, to me, is an ongoing process every day. It's fascinating to me. I find new and interesting nuggets that I've never seen before. I try to correct the mistakes I see in people's reports. Like, for instance, Mr. Tillian House was not a PGA member, just an example. But also, just to look at where we started and how the PGA was really instigated um, and, and sparked by Mr. Wanamaker, Rodney Wanamaker, a man who uh, basically uh, wanted to build the dreams of others. Here's a man that uh, supported the uh, uh, race for across the Atlantic, uh, and he, he couldn't get uh, his man to go across the Atlantic in time. And when their plane uh, went down in, in a practice run, Lindbergh makes his way to Paris. So he, he was that in tune with some of the great history things. He was welcoming in General Pershing when he came to New York City as an official ambassador. And, and it, just before his life it, uh, ended, uh, Mr. Wanamaker's uh, sold his mansion in Palm Beach to Joseph Kennedy, and it became the Winter White House. So there's, wow. there's, there's so many different ways to look at uh, things about the way this PGA of America has grown, but also look at how history in golf is, is very vital to all of our work. I think Jeff would agree that in his writing that you call upon pieces of history to really um, enhance and bring things together. And hopefully the new generation and this 24-7 news cycle that we have and what did you do me, for me five minutes ago will be able to understand that how important it is to bring these factors together. Well, especially when we hear so many people declare something the greatest this or uh, the most important person in the history of this. And then you, you think uh, you just hear some of these little snippets of what Bob's sharing uh, and you, you realize that there were so many people who came before. And then so many. I mean, can you imagine some of those discussions, the founders of the PGA and discussing the PGA championship match play versus stroke play and and arguing and people think that uh, nobody ever argued about anything before 2000. <laughs> it's, so it's great. And then I, but I do think what, what's fun and, and what, what is great about Tilly House and, and someone or somebody like Wanamaker, you hear these stories, Rod and, and Bob and Clays, but you realize what personalities they were. And I think a lot of people, like you said, Rod, a lot of people think history is dry and, and you, you end up finding out, no, actually these people were incredibly, uh, interesting and maybe a little crazy and and funny and and all ones, that. <laughs> the crazy ones are the best yeah. ones, aren't they, Jeff? And often, yeah. Be, uh... Uh, Sorry, Rod. One, I want to ask one thing, Bob. Just on back to the letters. What? How, how did? What? What has been the history of those? Just as a from from a documentation and pr preservation point of view, uh, somebody. You, you explain how they were they were documented there at the headquarters. Then have they just remained in a in a in an archive since, or did they move around, or did they get lost? Or, well, that's a good I know question. These things uh, always have <laughs> funny histories. It started it started at the headquarters in probably Chicago, and where they put together all these, and they became a bound volumes. I have the 
the old bound volumes here that were first in the PGA World Golf Hall of Fame, then they went to the PGA Museum of Golf. Then we closed the Museum of Golf, and uh, I I kept them here, and so they're now here at PGA headquarters. Uh, two um, sort of vintage-looking uh, brown volumes with uh, you know aging aging binding on them, but yeah. the, the, the writing inside the writing inside and Tillinghast's signature are very clear. And uh, it's just a, it's like it's, it's just a great piece to, to refer to at any time. And uh, I, I think people in around the country, like if they could point their course and see what Tillinghast said about their golf course. Well, would it be a big project to digitize them? I mean, is it the kind of thing where the the, the volumes would have to be taken apart? Because uh, I know how those things can be. They can be really, mm-hmm. or they can be too delicate. Mm-hmm. You know what? What is the the way forward for preserving these and if and uh, and modernizing, if you will, uh, how we it would be it would, it would be it would be scanning the pages and that that can yeah. be done. It's not it, this is not difficult from this uh, type of binding, mm-hmm. uh, but we have 392 entries and we we wow. can certainly put those across and uh, make make it possible. I'd like to have it online in the, in the near future. Yeah. Oh, good or great. Well, mm-hmm. it would be fantastic. And I, yes, go, Bob. You want to can, I, can I share one nugget with you on, on the tale on Mr. Kilinas when he when he died in Toledo? Uh, he passed away on, on May 19, 1942. Uh, he was cremated, and his ashes traveled to some of the most favorite places of his career. They were spread at Philadelphia Cricket Club, St. Martin Campus, Chestnut really? Hill and huh. into the Wissahickon course at the Cricket Club. And the balance of his ashes are interned at the Cedar Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. So the gentleman really loved his, hmm. his life in Philadelphia where it started, and, uh, and, and he, he went on, and just just a very rich and uh, fulfilling time. Yeah. Well, what an extraordinary sort of a story. Um, well, I think you can make a case. He's, he, I mean, Clates, uh, what do you think? Uh, in terms of his accomplishments as a player, every element, writer, architect, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, promoter, mm-hmm. I don't know if there are many people that have had a, had a more uh, incredible life in the game. No, I'm just and he, looking through this. I would say, I would, I, 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 I'm going interrupt, to interrupt you. I was going to interrupt <laughs> yeah, Jeff to say, they say that Pete Dye is probably on par, a, a little maybe as good a player as Tillinghast, but but Tillinghast played in two U.S. Amateurs and one U.S. Open. Right. And uh, so I would say he, he's definitely earned his way and is one of six uh, architects in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Wow, yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, what were you going to say, Clay? No, I haven't looked at this, the book, it's called The Course Beautiful. I haven't looked at it yeah. for years, but the writing in this is amazing. He is a great writer. It's a brilliant book. I mean, it's just, it's really, I mean, every, you know, it's like the Spirit of St. Andrews, right? I mean, every Green Committee should read this. It's just yeah. simple advice. It's logical and sensible and easy to read. And, you know, it's a, it's a great book. This and thing. they did a great job putting yeah. those together because he wrote so much yeah. beyond the, yes. the, the reports that Bob is telling us about. But, and they, they, uh, it's hard to imagine how you put his writings into various volumes, but they ended up doing it in a great way. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a very nice book. I wonder, it strikes me, we talked about this a little bit, Clates, recently, this past weekend when we were down at Barnburgle Dunes and the role of media and those things. So many of these architects wrote, that, that in many ways, it was a far freer and more um, 
sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is a is, is a far more interesting kind of press time with the American golf and all those things. There was lots and lots of discussion and debate in writing about golf course architecture and the direction the game should be going. And we kind of lost that for a bunch of years. And podcasts have sort of brought it back. Wouldn't it be amazing, Clates, to get Tillinghast and? Can you imagine having them on podcasts, which was the equivalent at the time, I guess? The <laughs> how amazing would that be? Those discussions, don't you reckon? Because that's really what was going on, wasn't it, Clates? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, here's the thing that, I mean, you would never dare write this now because you would upset the clubs you work for. But here he is saying, um, a committee of three or four is quite large enough. A greater number is likely to prove unwieldy and generally includes considerable dead wood. Well, if, you know, if, if I wrote that now, you'd be, you know, the clubs would be yeah. all over you for, you know, you know, for criticising that. Yet, you know, what a great piece of advice. And, and how, you know, when we look at what's happened since, how many bad decisions have been made or not made by clubs, mm-hmm. you know, trying to sell something to 15 people on a committee. Yeah. You, you know, you know he, he, here's Tillinghouse, one of the greatest architects. Mackenzie, one of the greatest architects. Both saying three to five is enough, mm. you know, and, and yet every club in the country's got, well, in the world's probably got ten to twelve to fifteen people on the green committee. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. there's lots of yeah. very relevant current day, well, well, advice that's relevant to the current day and the issues the games has. You know, these guys all wrote about it. I like, uh, you stitched up Adrian Logue earlier, which was beautiful, Clates, and I really enjoyed it. I'm going to stitch him up again. He, he actually said something fantastic last week on another podcast we recorded, which is take a photo of almost any golf course in the world, remove 10 things from it, and you'll probably have improved the golf course. Same might be said for committees. Is that what we're suggesting? Well, it depends on the committee. I mean, we've worked with committees of eight and 10 that are terrific, but you know, I've often thought that clubs would be better to have a permanent green committee of the most knowledgeable core of three or five or six members of the club who understand the golf course and they're in charge of it. And, you know, Jeff, we can all recount stories of clubs that have gone into dark times because of bad decisions, committees of money. Oh, yeah. with, well, Rob, we mentioned the other day, the podcast, the Friday podcast with um, – Al Jamison talking about the California club and how they transformed the IQ, well, the golf IQ of that golf club by educating the members and coming in and discussing what they were going to do to that golf course. So, you know, so that was an example of a committee doing a great job to, you know, to really repair a golf course that had fallen into <laughs> disrepair, I guess. But I think I think Mackenzie stopped in there. Or excuse me, Tillian stopped there too, I, I believe. I'm not, right, Bob, <laughs> was that was on the list? Cal Club, California Golf Club? Uh, but that place had many people through it too. So um, yeah, oh, yeah. Mackenzie had been but through that, that as well. Part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, no, it's it's and that, and that, and I know that was a recurring theme for telling us through his life. Uh, but but even before this this tour, uh, which reminds me, Bob, uh, who dubbed it the PGA Tour? <laughs> that could have worked out differently, well, couldn't it? <laughs> it? It really, it really, it really wasn't the PGA of America. Um, but others that watched him come through, the media and other people that yeah. interviewed him, they, they gave it the tour. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's just funny. It's more yeah. one yeah. little element mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
We might let Bob go, uh, chaps. Okay. And, and we, we might have a, a bit more of a, a discussion just about Bethpage Black specifically, obviously, with the tournament coming up. But yeah. uh, we might let Bob go because, Bob, we really wanted to get a sense of these sort of letters and Tillinghast and his contribution beyond just the golf course. It'll be such a focus, of course, won't it, in two weeks' time, the golf course. It'll oh, be absolutely. Yep. Major, yeah. so, uh, yep. But it's just nice to know that uh, a bit of a broader story because uh, Tillinghast made such an important contribution, of course. I don't think this is the last time you and I will talk, Bob. Uh, I have a separate well, podcast yeah, going yeah. on in the background, so I reckon you'll get the call up for that at some point. But it's been fantastic of you to take some time today. We really appreciate it. And I'd love to see you get. Well, I th- thank you. Thank you so much for uh, contacting me. And I really appreciate the being on the show. All right. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Best wishes. <laughs> take care. Bob Denny there, the historian for the PGA of America. And uh, I wonder what a day in the life of the PGA historian looks like, Shaq. I would imagine it's a lot of early mornings and late nights, funnily enough, uh, trawling through old documents about various bits and pieces. Of course, Beth Page Black, uh, Shaq, we've already said it a couple of times, it sort of came back into the public consciousness. Uh, Right. When was the first? Was it 2002? 2002 was the the US Open. So we're 17 years down the track. What's the take on Beth Page Black? It was very exciting at the time, wasn't it? That move by the USGA to go back to a public golf course. Here we are 17 years later. The PGA will hold their championship there. What's happened in between? Good, bad, or indifferent for Beth Page Black? Well, there's always excitement going back there because it's a public course and it's a, a people's venue. And so I think that's one of the more fascinating elements to this, that even though we've kind of been there, done that, they've had two Barclays. Uh, which is now the Northern Trust. And, and um, so they've had a couple of tour events and then uh, two U.S. Opens. It doesn't really dull the excitement uh, for people, which I think is interesting. And it speaks to, you know, going to public venues, there's always going to be a certain energy that's special. Um, architecturally, they haven't done much. I think they've tinkered with uh, the horrendous 18th hole, and I don't think it's any less horrendous. Um, I think they've tried to, is that its official I, name I, on the card, Jeff? Horrendous? Uh, yeah, horrendous, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, w- I think they've done something to add another, I think, a little bunker to try to prevent. I don't think they wanted to see the Lucas Glover layup that we saw last time, but they're selling it as, I don't know. It's, it's just a bad one. He had a six on, yeah. He had a six on. So, I, I don't know. But anyway, they haven't done much work, and uh, and I think the... Uh, you know, the thing we don't, we didn't want to put, uh, Bob on the spot on though, is that, that, you know, that, that part of the story is, is always this design credit story. And, and I, I don't think it's that complicated really. Um, when you, from a historical point of view, and, uh, I think Bob has, uh, and the feature we're doing kind of will, will, will help add to that, but not entirely, but, but I mean, the, the short version, Rod, is that, um, Tillinghast really came to deplore this Works Progress Administration and and kind of bureaucracy and dealing with it. So it's clearly his design, his vision, what they did there. And it's clear to me that he and Ron Witten documented this well. He he basically walked away from it and and didn't oversee the details of construction. And then that's what, to me, Beth Page Black looks like, is it's it looks like a tilling ass course on paper and in vision and in scale and what he would do. And each course had its role there, but you know, some of the greens aren't particularly thrilling and it, it lacks some of those final details that his great courses have. And Clay's right. That's not an unusual story in the history of golf. Not, not at all. 
and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't mean it's less uh, of a of a place because maybe he didn't finish it off. It's just that just tells you the story of how it came to be what it is. And I don't think he ever would have built that crazy a set of greens anyway. There, right? You know, with what he was trying to do with it. What do you reckon, Clay? She no, walked it. No, I mean, well, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And I mean, I just thought. I mean, and, um, Huggy, we ran into Reese Jones on the golf course one. He said, well, "Why are all the bunkers in the rough?" <laughs> so it's just that was can, USGA setup as much as anything. Yeah, I think. you know, it's just. A, I think it'll be a little wider this time, but not a lot, but a little. Yeah, it would be so much more elegant without any of that long grass around it, and of course. The problem with Bali, it'll be too easy if they do that. But you know, well, the much, weather we're having, yeah. or they're yeah. having, suggests it's going to be pretty soft. Well, yeah, I was going to so say, that, what is the, you, you touched on the weather thing, but how will the course play, Jeff? Has it been a, a wet uh, winter? Just, and is it going to be soft and very soft, very soft and long? And it's been raining, and it'll continue to rain. And this is what what that prediction was possibly for May that you could have a uh, a very wet spring and. So that's that's the issue with going there in, in May. Yeah, Clay. So I wanted to ask you because, of course, we already touched on you were there at two thousand two, the US Open, walking inside the ropes and all of that excitement on television and the pictures you see of Beth Page back. It looks like a big, bold, brassy, sporty golf course as they used to say in the Gold Age. Is that what it feels like on the ground? Yeah, yeah, it's massive. It's hilly. Yeah, hilly and just that was the, the two thousand two US Open was the one where they used a 2T start for the first time, and they went out to the 10th hole yeah, 7.30 in the morning with a 265-yard <laughs> carry to the fairway. Yeah. Nick Price was aiming at the the, the walking path because you know, yeah. they, they couldn't reach the fairway. Yeah, so it was, um, yeah, yeah, it was a big, brawny, difficult golf course. But, it, yeah. But anyway, adventurous yeah, looks. Yeah. Is it an adventure? Well, the routing is an adventure, yeah. It's it, a... It's, uh, it really is. Uh, it's just so big in scale. It's hard to be charmed by it. But yeah, it, it, it's it's a fascinating way. It kind of goes out and comes back, and um, you know, it, it is sullied a little bit by the closing hole. And um, but otherwise, and 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 it's not overly strategic, frankly. Uh, really, the only hole I could find truly great strategy was was the fifth, where you really the more you bite off, the view got better and. The more you bail out to the left, uh, the the view is just awful. But um, but it, it's one that the players like. Uh, it fits their eye. The dreaded fits Ooh. their eye. Yeah. There's your first yeah. clue. <laughs> well, no, I don't. I don't. You know, I don't think there's anything too wrong with it. Most Tillinghast courses fit your eye. I, I'd say if if you want to go by that that barometer, I think uh, that's one of the reasons he was a great architect. Is they were pleasing in a in a certain kind of uh, cinematic, dramatic way. Um, but I, 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 uh, I think it's just a fun uh, chance to sort of uh, celebrate his life. And, and uh, even if it's not his, his masterpiece, he certainly had something very significant to do with it. But what about the notion of playing big championships at public golf courses, Clates? So I would imagine this is something would have your support, and there's probably, in fairness, not that many up to hosting something as big as the PGA or the US Open. It'd be an interesting thing if we saw more professional golf on public courses. Would it or would it not? Am I missing the point? Around the world? Yeah, everywhere, here included, in Australia. Yeah, well, the old course, I guess, Pinehurst, Pebble Beach. 
so the USJ like going to public courses, it seems, and, and they go to a lot of them. Um, yeah, well, we tried it at Moon Links with the Australian Open in Melbourne, but it was too far out of the city to make that work. But there are no public courses in Melbourne, in Australia that could ever hold the Australian Open, certainly not in their current state. But it would be a great thing to, you know, it's a great, you know, Jeff said it's a great thing to go to the people's course in, the, in New York and play a golf course that everybody knows. And everybody, you know, you know, I assume a lot of people have played it who live there. And so it's a great thing to do things like that. I wrote a piece for, for Golf Week uh, that'll probably get online here in the next few days. I'll post it on my site. But I, I wrote that um, this is actually, we're beginning to wind down this public course experiment. And and I think, you know, there's a chance it could be viewed negatively. And that was kind of my first impression, really, was thinking, well, okay, Bethpage was successful. Um, and it's, it's, it's made that whole place better and the other courses are better maintained and they've been very lucky. They've had, a um, now a second superintendent who are, who are very good at what they do. And that's such a key, but then we have Harding park next year for the PGA. And then we have Torrey Pines in 21. And then after that, other than the Ryder cup coming back to Beth page, the public thing is over with the majors. Coincidence um, or deliberate? Do you think? Uh, I think it's, I think it's partly deliberate and just how many places can handle what a modern tournament's become and distance wise and yardage and and the uh, infrastructure infrastructure yeah they're behemoths aren't they these events (laughs) but then yeah it's it's uh, it's ridiculous uh what you need but at the same time we also have some really exciting stuff going on with with little movements all over the country to protect uh, uh, projects or, or facilities of value and facilities that were from the WPA era and an appreciation of the architects who were attracted to those. And by the way, they were not just the golf architects, the clubhouse architects for a lot of these places were some of the very best names uh, in their their region and their area of the time. So a lot of the buildings are very special too. But anyway, my point is I think that it's been a great, um, experiment because it has finally, it took a while, but it's finally kind of kicked in this notion that, uh, well, who cares? We can't host a major. These places are still of value. They still have architectural merit. And if a little bit of, of love and, and care is put into them, they're going to be great uh, centerpieces of the community again, which they once were when they were built. It legitimizes, doesn't it? So you really don't need to read the column now because I just <laughs> We'll release this after the column comes out, Jeff, and the two will there push each go. other along. No, no. The column will sell the pod and the pod will sell the column. There be interesting. There's something important in that, though, isn't there, Jeff? That, that, that's the movement I'm sort of seeing a bit here in Australia, probably because it's a particular interest. You know, when you're interested in something like when you buy a new car, you always seem to see the same car everywhere where you never noticed it before. It kind of works like that. But these movements towards... The, the community links idea, golf as part of community as opposed to golf as what we used to see it as. I mean, it, it, it's not like it's taken over the whole game, but there's a genuine element of that, isn't there? I think there's yeah. a new things just launched in the States about that. The Golf Industry Council yeah. in Australia are now talking right. about starting a program, a pitch-in for community golf. This is really a throwback to that time, isn't it, where golf was not behind fences over there for rich people. And it's important that we go back to that in a lot of ways for the health of the game you would think yeah and i just wonder if generationally there there's something that's happened where um the 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 country club notion is is less attractive or that the 
um, the, the, the need for a certain kind of experience is just not there for uh, an, an, another generation of people. And they hear that, oh, this place has good bones. And if we could just fix it up a little, I'm going to that's going to be a great thing for our our community and it's a fun place to go and i yeah you guys i'm sure you probably get here is sick of seeing it on social media but but and 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 uh but there is a real reason people are focusing on what john ashworth's doing at goat hill and what winter park nine that matt janela's highlighted down there in florida i mean you go there and you actually see what happens when a place just has some some life put back into it and it's in the right location and has the right bones, it just becomes exactly what we know a, a good golf course can be. Not just a, a cool place for golfers, but um, a community events and a nice place to sit down and go have a you know an Arnold Palmer and watch the sunset or whatever it is. Or kids find um, you know it to be a place that's great. Um, all those things. So I you know, we have so many of those facilities in the U.S. that are so neglected, and I mean, it, it, you could just go all day trying to to pinpoint ones that that uh, would be great. But it's starting to happen. So I think this the Beth Page experiment really is what at least finally got people yeah. noticing those places again. Just to stitch Adrian Logue up for the last time, this is an idea which I think you'll find intriguing, Shaq. And I'm not even sure if it's feasible, but it's a delicious notion. He's big on the idea if you could sell to sort of public golf courses that at certain times of the week and certain days or afternoons, um, you can rent a tee box to have a picnic on because it's the safest place on a golf course. Hmm. So non-golfers can sit and have a picnic and watch the golfers come through. It's not as crazy as it sounds, is it? Do you reckon? Do people picnic that much in Australia? No, I didn't know no, that. I don't know. Well, it's, invi- <laughs> it's, it's a way to invite people into the courses, which is probably golf's biggest initial problem. Lots of people live near a public or semi-public golf course in Australia who don't realise they can go into the clubhouse and have dinner and a drink. Um, just that small thing. So it sort of works on that notion, I guess. I'm intrigued by the idea. I think it would be... Well, moderately entertaining, wouldn't it? I mean, I you know, I know Clates would agree, but I, I, I've thrown it out and I've heard it mentioned uh, in discussing some of these places in terms of imagining how to reinvent them, you know, because governments and and residents and others will go, well, there's just not enough people play golf, it's a dying game. And some of these places have pitched either, you know, one day a week we're closed and, it, and it's a, the, the place is treated as a park and you can you can uh, walk around and enjoy it or it's treated as um, soccer, uh, you know, uh, foot golf place one day a week, you know, those kinds of things. And, and that's just been, I think that's another generational thing that, that people were obsessed. Oh my gosh, we can't have people out there. They'll, they'll all vandalize the greens. And we've come to realize, well, no, not really. They won't runners, joggers, uh, getting to run around or walk their dog or whatever on a Monday, or they're not going to go out and vandalize the greens, you know, and uh, with a little bit of supervision or a little bit of education, um, these things can coexist, as we know the old course has proven. Yeah, indeed. Clates, we just came back from Barnboogly, our course study tour, and a big shout-out and thanks to all of the people who came Yeah, t- hey, how about it? Tell us about the trip. It was good fun. What do you reckon, Clates? What was your take? I don't think we really talked about sort of how it all went. It was pretty busy on the ground looking after everybody. 11 people's a lot more than you think, Shaq, as it turns out. And I found out nowhere near as easy as the professionals make it look like most things. Um, I thought it was really good. I was really interested, Clates. We got no – nobody said anything about the condition of the course. And for a lot of those 
or for a portion of those golfers, they play most of their golf in Queensland, much of it resort golf, where condition is kind of the biggest selling point. I thought that was interesting. Perhaps we're making headway. They were quite confronted by the look of Barnboogle Jones <laughs> compared to what they normally play. But I thought that was interesting. What was your take on what unfolded there, Clay? It was. I thought it was. Uh, I, I thought it was fun. We got to play Jeff with nine holes of, with everybody, mostly twice. So we played a lot with everybody. It was uh, the weather was perfect, showing that once again proved that the best time to go there is the winter because it's not as crowded and the weather's beautiful and it's mm. dark at five thirty. So you get five hours on when you don't feel like you should be playing golf in the clubhouse at night, eating and talking and drinking and. So it was a great trip. The, the condition, I mean, I've always said it's the best condition course in Australia because it's the feel of ball, club and ground contacts unmatched because of the playing off the fescue. It's the only place in Australia where you're truly playing off all fescue. So it's, it's the best mm. condition course in Australia. The older the greens get, the better they get. Um, it's just a perfect place to play golf. It's beautiful. But mm. you're right. The, the, the one, I mean, I played at my club yesterday, Metropolitan, where every lie is perfect and the fairways are amazing and people would there was a, a, a the majority of people would say that Metropolitan is a better conditioned golf course and certainly the lies of the fairway are more consistent but you, it's just always going to be second class golf playing off Bermuda or Cooch versus yeah. playing off Fescue yeah. And, yeah. and of course you know in Fescue you take divots so people don't put divots back so it's a bit, a bit more obvious that you know there are more divot holes or badly replaced divots but in terms of if the measure of the condition of the golf course is how the golf course plays then it's by far the best condition you know it's amazingly conditioned because everywhere your ball lands it's landing on the same grass and bouncing with the same consistency as you know it's not this different different grassing lines and different grasses and because the greens are basically the same grass as the fairways and yeah it's amazing and, and I mean, Brian Walsh's bitch about, which is kind of legitimate, that the ball plugs in the bunkers because basically the golf course is built on the beach. So, so the bunker sand is really soft and there's not much you can do about that. It's not important, is it, Chris? It's the condition. No, of, yeah. But, you know, I was, he thought I was joking, but I wasn't really. I mean, you know, going, I mean, apart from the seventh hole, it's, a very, it's, it's difficult to go in a bunker there. You just don't go in many bunkers there. I mean, perhaps it's because I play really, really <laughs> well. Because you can play. But, <laughs> But, but in terms of, you know, I played with a couple of guys yesterday on the Samba, a Metro, where it was the first time they'd played there. And the, the Sandbelt's dominated by bunkers. There's no fringe grass between the greens and the bunkers. The bunkers are all, the greens are all surrounded by bunkers. And bunkers are very much in play. And these guys spend all day in the bunkers. But the bunkers are not really that much a part of the play at Bumbergle. So, so, so they, they have much less influence over the game, which is a good thing because it is beach sand and, and there, are, there are a bunch of plug lies. But again, as we discussed down there, it's not a place to go and – it sounds crazy, but it's not a place you go and play golf to score. It's a place you go and play golf to play golf and hit balls and have fun. And if your ball's plugged in the bunker, kick it out into a decent line and play it out. And, you know, that, that's more the spirit of golf down there. Have you played golf with Clates, Shaq? Yeah, we yes. played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I had never. In fact, I hadn't actually seen Clates hit a ball in person, if you can believe that. In all this time I've known him, the one thing I've never actually done is go and watch a... I found that to be just such a true joy, Shaq. And I think we as golfers underrate the talents and the skills and the extraordinary abilities of players like Clates, who, you know, as 
made a living playing golf for two and a half decades, it really is something to see up close. And I think, Clutch, you'd accept that you probably passed your best physically in terms of golf. I was going to say, I can't play at all anymore. And my, go- my goodness, <laughs> not from where I'm standing off 11, <laughs> is that the case? And I thought that was a, a real joy to see a golf course like Bamboogle played the way it should be played, Jeff. Clates hit a four iron into the seventh, which is a 115 yard par three, I'm guessing, Clates, into the wind on Friday. Into the wind, yeah. He hit a yeah. four iron to six feet. Yeah. Wow. You consider that, to see that up close, that sort of shot-making was just phenomenal. So, look, it was a really interesting experiment, which is kind of what it was. We want to do more. Um, we want to come over and do them in your part of the world too, Shaq. We want you to be along and be yeah. part of it. Um, so it was a really interesting idea. And the guys that came, obviously, were, you know, as the first group that signed up for it, were all pretty into it. Um, and I think they all had a good time. And there's bits and pieces we'll tweak. Barmboogle, and they haven't paid us. Uh, and They don't need to. What a facility. Just gets everything... Right, it's what a public access world top 50 golf course should be. And the staff are genuinely happy, they're laid back, the places run just brilliantly. I know you've been there, yeah. Shaq, and you know what it is. You yeah, yeah, there. yeah. I'm glad to hear it's still that way. Well, That's awesome. You, it's amazing. I think it was my fifth visit, and it's amazing. I mean, five times in 15 years, not a lot of times to visit places. You feel like you're coming home. It's quite amazing. I don't know how they do it, but... There's an extraordinary welcoming feeling to the place, and with the yeah, and you know, Richard Sattler and Sally's wife, they're they're in the bar both nights. You know, they're always not always, but they're often in the bar and just talking to the people who are playing there. And you go down there. I mean, Pat Rafter was down there. I mean, you, you, they're always you, know, you go every time I go there. There's, there's someone I know who's down there who you know, just there's people. Lots of people go there and play golf and keep it going, and it's a, it's a great business. It's, it's turned into a Oh, tremendously successful and, and as Richard said he, uh, he's really running a hospitality hotel business you know the golf spot gets them there but it's but it only gets them there because it's great golf if the golf wasn't any good the hotel would be shut in six yeah. months but you know a huge a huge part of that business is hotel and catering and food and drinking that's what brings people hospitality back. that's right the yeah it's worth it and so is the experience if it was terrible experience you've got um and my mum was as excited as i thought she'd be clates that i'd met pat rafter in fact she might have been more excited about the fact that i'd met pat rafter than even i thought she might be so it was great who you know who kind of sat down for half an hour and got drilled about the tennis ball and yeah. technology and tennis well, it was interesting, Shaq, wasn't it, Clates? He talked about how different tournaments have different ball contracts with the different manufacturers. Oh, here and we the... go. I knew we'd, knew we'd satisfy our drinking audience. <laughs> yeah, well, we do. But what was interesting oh, was... I wonder about that. Well, I wondered why y'all... Okay, go ahead. He t- what he Please. said, what did he say, Clates? He hated the slow balls because some of the balls are heavier and slower, depending who the manufacturer is and where they're playing. And He, he hated the slow ball. He well, because well, he was the... Ball. He was the serve and volley, so yeah. you know. So, so he wanted the ball to be going quicker. So yeah. the slower the ball, the, the the more it hurt his game. But because my sure. assumption is, it, you know, the slow balls, you know, from the guys who stand at the back of the court and whack it back and forward and move it around. But he he was a fast ball player because he was a fast court player because he served volley because he grew up in Australia serving and volleying. So so you know, different players would you know, someone who didn't play like him would hate the fast ball. Right, and the fast I just thought what an intriguing concept that the tour moves from venue to venue. And I suppose in some ways golf courses do a similar thing where they're just, you know, the equipment doesn't suit my eye this week, but that's what we're playing. So get on with it. 
He yeah. didn't suggest that he get to a, that he avoided tournaments where the slow ball was. He just didn't like it as much playing with it. So it was an interesting discussion. Uh, and he's a keen golfer, obviously, Pat. So yeah, that was exciting. Look, but, it was good, Jack. It was. I think they're a good thing to do. I think it was educational. Most of the yeah. guys there knew a lot already, as you'd expect. Sure. But I think most learnt something too. I mean, just the opportunity to walk the golf course with Clates while he's both playing and talking about. Oh, it. sure. Were there lots of questions, Clates? Did you think? Did you notice? Yeah, there? I think it was good. Yeah, I thought most. But let me name drop again. Apologies. And I'd never thought there was a connection between motorcycle tracks and golf courses. But I played golf yesterday with Casey Stoner, who won the World Championship twice, and he was talking about boring tracks that he hated that were flat and just unimaginative and, and the most interesting tracks which were laid out over hilly ground that had subtleties to the corners and how you came in and out of the corners and it was amazing the analogy he made between the interesting tracks he raced on well, were all about the contours and the subtlety of how the, the bumps and how they worked and how and and how you rode them versus the boring flat things where you just went as fast as you could and you know, I never made the connection, but there was absolutely a, a direct analogy between the interest in the most interesting motorcycle circuits he'd raced on and the most interesting golf courses. Maybe there's mm. a new podcast out there, Feed the Bike. It was, Feed the Bike, yeah. But uh, the other thing we talked about, which was relevant to the trip, was that how bad a job golf does of selling its image as a game for old white men when... <laughs> You know, you have yeah, Pat Raff, who's obsessed by golf. Casey Stoner, who's obsessed by golf. Is he a good player? Does he play a lot? Or Yeah, he's a really good player. Yeah, he hasn't been playing long, but he's 11 handicap. He's an 11 handicap with chronic fatigue syndrome Ooh. who hits shots that only three handicappers could hit. Right. So he's really good. Uh, you know, Niall Horan, that we've got 40 million, we've mentioned before, 40 million young girls on Instagram who follow him. He's obsessed with golf. Right. You know, there are so many different people from all, you know, famous in all other sports and all other walks of life who all gravitate to the game because they love it and get obsessed by it. Yet there's still this image that it's a game played by 60-year-old boring white men. And it does a lousy job of selling the fact that all these people that are regarded in cool in every other part of their lives gravitate to golf and play golf because they love it. Yeah. Why, yeah, do we, so why do we get that so wrong, Shaq? Because most of them, I would imagine if you went to Pat Rafter, if you were a golf Australian, and said, look, we want, we want to do a campaign to sort of change the image of golf, would you be interested? He'd do it for Knicks. I'm sure he'd do it for nothing. I'm, well, I think that's I'm, the I might have switched him up there. Maybe he wouldn't, but I would imagine yeah. that a lot would. Oh, uh, well, we haven't had a shortage of money spent on campaigns and, and ads and trying to get those people's uh, interest shared. I just think that they, they, the idea of running in a campaign in places that the, these people don't see it, younger people, or they just see through uh, an ad campaign and, and they don't actually, and then they go out to a golf course and it's, uh, you know, the starter's a jerk and uh, the place is terribly run or the, it's an intimidating game. Yeah, they just don't really, that money could be better spent on ways to introduce you to the game that are that are a little more, welcoming and their idea of that too is just again another program another initiative and i get that that's the easiest thing to sell to a board of people but we know that the way you get introduced to golf is tagging along with other people uh as a kid and or if you're a little bit older going to the range and 
it has to happen more naturally. It has to happen. Yeah. And and so to me, the the problem, in, at least in the U.S., is that when people do that and they go to these places, they're 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 not. Uh, some of them are. They have a great experience and they're totally excited and interested. But a lot of the time, they're not. If the place is a dump or the place is stuffy and rude, if it's a you know club and yeah, those things are starting to change. But it's the damage is obviously done. Which is why Bamboogle does so well because it's none of those things. Right. Yeah, you, know, you can wear jeans in the clubhouse as long as you behave, you're fine, and most people behave. And the short answer to your question, Shaq, it was yes. And uh, good, good. I'd like to do some more of them, and I think the people had good fun. And there's tweaks to be made, and there's but lots learned. And look, we had three days at Bamboogle June, so even if everything else had been a disaster, sure, it couldn't sure. be that bad a time, could it? Um, yeah, yeah, great. So good fun, but um, thank you for sure, it was good. Yeah, what food was good. It would have been great to have um, Skyped you into the podcast, Shaq, but I checked the time, and it was 3 a.m. for you, so my guess was yeah. you weren't up and about waiting for my call. Probably not up for that one, <laughs> to yeah. Be, yeah. To be a part of that. I'll tell you this. Quite a few other people asked. They said, oh, is Jeff going to be Skyping in? Will we be hearing from Jeff at all? Or? <laughs> Quite seriously, So because they're all state-of-the-game listeners. This is the only place, really, that the marketing of the whole tour happened. So, yeah, there were quite a few that yeah. were disappointed when I said it was too early in the morning for you over there. So, uh, I'm sorry. Well, no, not at all. We'll do a breakfast one one day. Uh, we'll get you in. Okay. So. Now, uh, and that pod, uh, yeah, okay, we'll make sure to highlight that one. Um, as So now that we've talked about it, there will be some people who uh, will wonder what we're talking what about. What the hell we're talking so about? I, uh, have we missed anything? What else is going on in the world of golf no, that's been I, controversial? No, I think it's, uh, it's all good. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for the PGA other than, you know, the weather and, and uh, hopefully there isn't too much uh, getting uh, people getting bogged down in the tilling half design uh, uh, controversy, which is kind of a tired story at this point. I think it's just one that people don't get because they don't get credit. But uh, no, I think it should be should be good. We we uh, I don't know if we want to go down the rat hole of the, uh, the, the 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 weekend argument over whether you need to have won a major championship to be able to uh, comment. Oh God, was this uh, Elkington? I, I think that answers the question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how, how, how ridiculous was that argument? I mean, Do you really? have to have been a professional broadcaster to comment on another broadcaster? Well, I mean, this is, it's an, it, I'm glad he said it because it is going in that direction. I get that a lot, and, yep. and I understand it. And I, and I do think Chambly makes a mistake sometimes of not showing enough uh, you know, prefacing criticism by saying, uh, you know, noting his admiration for the the players' accomplishments or something like that. Um, and I think that's where he opens himself up. But obviously, Steve just has a very different uh, uh, view. And, you know, uh, next it'll be, well, you have to have won a major championship in the 21st century to appreciate uh, what a player uh, is going through. And, I mean, it's 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 a ridiculous argument. Did so. anybody buy into it, though? I think most people see through that, don't they? Pretty... Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. There is a a a fanboy bro culture around golf, as Clayton and I can attest, Rod, and you can attest um, on the distance issue now, uh, but also on the backstopping comments, uh, where there is like a weird little mob mentality that 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 uh, digs in and and says you don't understand, you know this. This is this is our business, our our little group here, and and um, you just don't understand kind of thing. You need to have been out here to understand why we're helping each other cheat. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
So, note, to golf. note to golf, you're not athletes, you're entertainers. You may be athletic while you're about it, but your job is to entertain. Uh, and and I, product, product is not owned by you, it's owned by the fans. So, And that's it's a huge point because what, what ultimately I think this is, is getting at is that they are losing sight that that's what they are here for, mm-hmm. uh, that they are a uh, – and, and increasingly you hear it – I hear it at tournaments from sponsors – and then we see it in the media, they are becoming more and more of a player's organization. And anything the players want, anything the players gripe about, um, is the number one top priority. And the fan comes later. And that's where the slow play thing, I wrote about this just the other day, the slow play problems are starting to become an issue because nobody can do anything because the players are basically running their own organization. And they're losing sight of the fact that, well, their entertainment first, not about your 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 precious precious shots and what you think is the amount of time to play a golf shot. There's not a job in the world that pays the rates that professional golfers get paid that isn't entertainment. No surgeon in the world makes what a professional golfer makes. People yeah. who make yeah. real contributions will never get the sort of money that entertainers make. You know, only rock stars and movie stars and other sort of people who generate that, and, and it pays them to. Remember that. What do you reckon about that, Clotes? I'm sure you're in agreement with us there, but is this a new thing or were there primitive on the players who thought they were the most important thing in the game when you played the tour? No, there weren't. Well, no, there weren't. There were superstars who were superstars because they, they that, often they're superstars because they have a, an arrogance and a big ego, but I'm not sure which comes first. But, yeah, you're right. You know, they would all kind of throw out the we respect the game and well really you know and, and the, the the combination of giving young men who aren't necessarily the smartest people in the world a huge amount of money is a the inevitable result of that is a certain level of arrogance that comes with it. The other thing, of course, Shaq, is this uh, is the the separation between recreational hobby golfers, Dennis Pugh likes to call us. Yeah, professional yeah, golf. When professional yeah. golfers start themselves telling the fan that we as professional golfers are different, we play a different game. The game we play isn't yeah. like the game you play. It's more important. We have our own language. We have our own little rules and our own little systems. I'm not sure right. that's so healthy. And no. <laughs> I might want to think no. carefully about that before. We all know you're better players, but we all play the same right. game, I would have thought. No, that's a very interesting point because we, we have, um, you know, baseball is going through a struggle now where there's a younger fan base that, that is drawn to the game interested, but then they, you know, when a guy flips his bat and then he gets, he gets a a pitch thrown at his head the next time up, they could not grasp why somebody who was just expressing joy and, and entertaining them um, had broken this uh, silent code in the sport. And of course it was a, a huge turnoff. Uh, Some of those traditions probably were for good reason and 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 but some of them just made no sense to this next wave of fans and um golf is it's a fascinating that baseball had those and they've they've now they're grappling with it now golf is sort of is moving in that direction of 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 having these weird little things that these other rules and and, you know ogilvy is i mentioned this, you know, all the weird little things, and I think we've touched on it on the pod, that, that have just developed in the world of pro golf. Um, through lines and white belts, and I know I've mentioned this on the pod before, but it, it just weird little peccadillos and, and unwritten rules, and 
Um, and they they don't really grasp how weird they are. <laughs> and we all want to feel special, don't we, Shaq? But if you're playing on the PGA Tour, you're already special enough. You don't need to be doing all this other stuff to make yourself feel more special. That's perhaps kind of the point. And one more thing. Do, do we now feel that Carly Booth's been hardly done by with all the criticism she attracted with her Saudi Arabia post, given the one of the last couple of days? Are you referring to Mr. Norman? Yeah. Pally? Did you see Keith Pelly uh, doubling down on the tournament? I don't know why we're getting criticism. Really, Keith? Yeah. What's going I on? I wrote a show? post last night. I think I, I, I feel like this has permanently uh, stained his reputation. I mean, I, there, there are ways as an executive that you can, you can say uh, things like, I, I completely understand people's views and their, their, their outrage, uh, but there are business reasons and we really believe we can, we can make a difference. He just, he just is, he's playing dumb. I can't believe anybody would be bothered that we uh, are going to this country that is now pretty much now the, the, the nerve center of, of, uh, of just committing horrendous acts <laughs> on multiple fronts around uh, uh, the Middle East and in our country. And Why is he really doing it, Jeff? He's not I, dumb. I don't know. He's not dumb. I mean, they have... So it's a deliberate strategy. So he knows everything you just laid out would have been all laid out in a meeting in some boardroom at Wentworth at some point. Right. The, uh, the, the person doing background saying, you know, Keith, these would be the reasons I would not take a tournament there. Yes. He's been briefed. I don't know. I don't know. And it's, they have enough tournaments. They don't need one more tournament this badly. And, and they've done so much to – and my point in my blog post, and then Clates, I don't know what you guys think, but it seems to me that, that he can very quickly undo so much of the, the goodwill they've, they've done by going to better golf courses, by their great social media work, by uh, enhancing the views and images of their players. It seems like this – Digging in on this could just undo all that very quickly, right? Was that why is, is that is that an extreme? No, I just don't see, uh, especially after the thirty-seven executions, like you know, in public beheading. I mean, teenagers you know, just, uh, yeah. who have you know, protested against the government. That wasn't like they flew five planes into the World Trade Center, no. two planes into the World Trade Center. But. I, mean, I just don't see where the win is for them. I mean, just I don't get it. And, and they shouldn't be there. You know, there's no way they shouldn't be there. And, and you can argue, well, China and America, you know, but it's horrific stuff. You know? Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then then there's uh, there's the shirtless shark uh, turning up and. Uh, so I saw the headline. What's he done? I just saw a headline. He's got oh, He made a visit. He's going to grow the game. He's going to grow the game in Saudi Arabia. The shark car. Oh, I don't know. I'm assuming it's a golf course project. Uh, well, with, yeah. so, with so much professional golf there now, Shaq, they probably need another couple of facilities to host all of the tournament. Right, yeah. And and for all the uh, spectators who are out at the event. Uh, and, and room... Well, I won't go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. The, the short answer to your question, I think, Clades, is yes, Carly Booth's an easy target because of her standing in the pecking order of the game compared to the Dustin Johnsons, Justin Rose, Keith Pelly, Bryson DeChambeau. You can go right through the list. I think she got a hard time. What do you reckon, Jeff? Easy target, got more 
more kickback than a lot of those people? Well, she did because uh, Eamon wrote a column, but I think Eamon's point was you, it's, it's, it's a team effort sometimes with these things uh, in getting involved in this. And, and, and increasingly you do see these examples, or we see examples in, in the golf press uh, summer, things like, you know, why did Jordan Spieth go chase a check in Singapore when he really needed to take uh, a few weeks off? And, you know, he really hasn't quite ever been the same since yes he won a, the open championship but uh we see these weird little decisions that are made behind the scenes and i think she did get picked on in part because it was another example of who who is guiding these players sometimes um you know i'm seeing it in college golf right now i i um and i don't like picking on some of these young guys who or, uh, or, or women who are turning pro uh, a, l- a little soon because they're pursuing their dream. But I do have no problem picking on the people around them who are saying, yeah, yeah, now's, now's the time and we can get you a hundred grand here and you'll get your seven starts. And, and it's just not thinking of the best interest of the, of the players. So, so yes, yeah, she was picked on a, maybe a tad unfairly, but you just say, who is advising these people? Whoa. And there's a good Sometimes. question. Would she have it? And by the way, there's a lot of great advice being given too. Yes, that's and true. And those stories never get told. No. But I think the point is we're seeing more and more with all the wisdom we see in the game in terms of, of, of health and instruction and planning and travel, we're seeing a lack of wisdom in, in still on some major decisions that can affect somebody's career in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, would Carly Booth have a team clients? I would think it would be unlikely. Uh, she'd have a management I company, I suspect, but I doubt she'd have a team. And she, it would be no, that she would be the, the head, the lead product of that management team, stable, so to speak, which is how these things are often viewed as stables of players. And it's an interesting uh, relationship, isn't it? The manager and the player, <laughs> what goes on there? So, yeah, look, I, she deserved to be called out for it. There's no question about that. But it felt like a lot of people thought it was much easier to give her a hard time than perhaps some others. Uh, who have a higher profile and a higher standing or, or, or more a more high-profile standing in the game. We could talk about that all day. We won't. Been fabulous to catch up. Shaq, really enjoyed that. Thank you for your time. And thanks for organising, Bob. I thought that was some fantastic yeah, stuff in there. Yeah, thank you for... And important. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for uh, for giving him a chance to uh, tell this story because he really has basically saved uh, those letters and he's too humble to admit it. But uh, it's a great piece of golf history and I'm going to... At the PGA, uh, not that I'm the person to do it since I've been a little tough on them lately, but but it would be great um, and a small expense to have those digitized because he touched a lot of golf courses in the U.S. and people would just enjoy his his remarks uh, on their courses, even if they're not something to employ now. So it's really neat what he's done, and it's another chapter in, in uh, an incredible uh, life that uh, Tillinghast led in golf. We should do a deep dive on Tillinghouse one day. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Jeff, to be a member at a club that he'd visited and have the printout of the letter or his report? Yeah, I've seen a couple, and it is fun. You just think, oh, interesting. He thought that was a waste of time. and I mean, he was diplomatic, but it, you could tell. As yeah, is Clates. It, it comes with the turf, Shaq. You've got to be a diplomat <laughs> to being a course architecture. Mm-hmm. Clates, wonderful to catch up with you today. I really enjoyed catching up over the weekend and getting to play golf and all of those things, but it was fantastic, most importantly, to talk with you then and to talk with you today. It's always a joy and leaves me thinking about stuff in a different way, so I appreciate you taking the time today. No, it was great fun. Enjoyed it, mate. Thank you.
And that wraps up episode 90. We're, we're racing towards 100, I must say, so we might have to think about that. 92, I think I said. Uh, mm. 93, maybe, of the uh, State of the Game podcast. We'll be back to do it all again sooner than you think here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.